Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Perhaps one of the most important suttas of the Buddha is the Metta Sutta. Metta means unconditional friendliness or loving kindness. There's so many different translations. It's basically the emotionally empathetic value of greeting others without prejudgment, openness to others. And the Buddha in the Metta Sutta starts out by saying that one who practices goodwill will sleep easily and wake easily and they'll dream pleasant dreams. The angels will protect them, their minds will be serene and their complexions will be bright. Now that sounds like rather exorbitant promises to give for practicing a meditation where one simply wishes others well-being. And yet, Clinical studies have shown that when people do practice metta, it actually lowers stress, blood pressure, enhances the function of their immune system, reduces anxiety, and results very often in increased well-being. So that's pretty incredible, right? That this simple meditation can, the simple meditation can actually have such benefits. So, uh, in fact, if you'd like to read more about this, um, a great uh, clinical psychologist, Barbara Fredrickson, very important uh, psychologist, uh, wrote a book called Love 2.0, where she covers the benefits of Meta. But uh, for tonight's talk is more about, while Meta has um, certain biomedical uh, positive implications, a lot of its benefits are, of course, due to the mind's ability to influence the body. And we're going to branch into this topic by talking about the placebo effect. Now, what is the placebo effect? Many of us think we know what it is. I certainly thought I did before a couple of years ago. I started studying it a little bit more seriously. And actually, there's quite a lot of surprising and interesting facts about how placebos work and what they mean about spiritual and psychological practices. So the placebo effect is in fact that our beliefs about the effectiveness of an essentially inert treatment, that is a treatment that has actually no real direct effects on the body, can still lead to real health and cognitive benefits. In other words, for example, if a doctor gives you a sugar pill, tells you this pill will help uh, address your anxiety, then even though the pill is simply just sugar and has no effect whatsoever on your autonomic nervous system and the parts of the brain that reduce anxiety simply because you believe the pill will be effective, it actually will have beneficial results. It involves the seemingly magical power of the mind to influence the body. Uh, 
Essentially, if we believe something works, the mind can in some way actually make it work. Placebos actually, and this is what's fascinating, they're not uh, essentially uh, events or practices that have no benefits. They actually do have benefits. A sugar pill, pill, a saline injection, or the many multitudinous forms of placebos that are commonly used in pharma research to gauge the effectiveness of a drug actually do have benefits. The simple belief that we're doing something that will alleviate symptoms does in fact, to a degree, alleviate symptoms. Throughout history and numerous cultures, people have believed and experienced relief from plants, food, objects, and practices that actually have no actual medicinal value. It's simply their belief that the practice works that actually leads to experienced and very real benefits. There's a reason why people have for years gone back and repurchased what we consider to be snake oil or other essentially what we might call fake or bogus treatments, people don't go back because they don't experience any benefits. They actually do experience benefits from taking these essentially inert or uh, treatments that are really bereft of any actual medicinal value because their belief that it works actually does create changes. Placebos work on symptoms modulated by the brain. It, placebos work especially well for depression, pain as in analgesics, stress-related uh, ailments, anxiety. They also can work on Parkinson's, irritable bowel syndrome, and many other um, uh, uh, diseases. Placebos don't work as well with many primarily physical ailments. A placebo will not shrink someone's tumor and it will not cure MS and so forth. However, they're especially, again, effective. So effective, in fact, that many antidepressants, migraine medications, and uh, other treatments struggle to be more effective than placebo treatments. And we'll actually talk about a wonderful case where placebos always outpace the effectivity of actual medical treatments. Marked relief for those with uh, IBS, improved respiration for those with asthma, and as we'll see, it's even effective for Parkinson's disease. People given placebos for depression showed the exact same PET scan changes as those who were given actual antidepressants and their serotonin levels climbed. People who were in a sleep clinic who struggled to sleep four or five hours but were told that they slept eight hours actually performed as if they did in fact sleep eight hours simply because they believed that they had had a restful night of sleep. Parkinson's with 
uh, people with Parkinson's disease, uh, they did this fat, amazing study. Um, they, for one half, they put a whole group of patients essentially anesthetized. And when they woke up, they told one group that they had had brain surgery to address their Parkinson's when in fact they hadn't. The second group actually did have brain surgery, but they were told they didn't. They were told in their case they couldn't have the surgery. It turns out that the group that were told they did have surgery but in fact didn't actually outperformed the patients that actually did have the surgery. So in, in that case, the placebo well outpaced in effectivity the actual medical treatment. There's lots of studies that show that, for example, people given two placebos will have more effect than people given one placebo pill. Interestingly enough, people given blue placebos are placebo pills experience greater relief than people given red pills. I have no idea why people believe that blue pills are more effective, but it's uh, it's apparently been clinically uh, shown again and again. And branded placebos, i.e. placebos man, man, put in jars that look like real medications, outperform placebos that are just handed without any branding. There's uh, lots of examples of placebo effects outside of uh, medical treatment. Uh, for example, if you gra gather a group of wine experts, which people, which uh, clinical psychologists did, and they put a expensive label on a bottle of wine that actually contained wine that apparently cost like $5 for a bottle. So it was not a very good bottle of wine. They gave the wine to the experts who saw the expensive label and immediately rated it a very fine wine, even though they were drinking, I guess, the equivalent of swill, because their mind believed that they were drinking expensive wine. When people are told they're eating fatty foods when they're not, their ghrelin levels will go down. That's a hormone that creates hunger. And so even though they're not eating a lot of calories, simply believing that they are will reduce calorie, uh, hunger as if they had eaten something actually fatty. Another one, the ancient practice of cupping. How I like that one. Um, heated cups are placed upside down on someone's back and then the air inside the cup cools, which creates a vacuum, of course, and then the blood vessels uh, expand, and then the skin rises up into the, the cup and reddens. Now, this actually, this treatment has very limited actual biomedical uh, properties. Some people theorize it might lead to a slight release of nitric oxide, which makes people feel slightly better, but that would really be trace amounts. The real reason why cupping has been effective for so many people's pain 
over the years is because people believe that it works and hence it's effective. So here comes the big question. How are placebos so effective? How do they work? If they don't have any actual medical ingredients or qualities, how do they leave such actual benefits? Well, the first is that a huge part of our, of our perception of the world is shaped by our expectations. We experience what we expect to experience. In other words, our prior beliefs uh, influence deeply what we actually experience. For example, uh, the amount of information <clears throat> that goes through the uh, from the retinal nerves to the occipital lobe is only a fraction, generally, of the information necessary to create the world that we see. We see a fully fleshed out landscape around us, but actually much of the, what we see is created by the occipital lobe based on previous experiences and expectations. So if you want to surprise yourself, sometimes walk into a space that you think you know very well, really stare at some area of the room and you'll very often see that the image that you had of it will change. You'll suddenly see something that wasn't there previously is now there or something you um, expected to be there is gone and your the occipital lobe will now have to revise the image it created of the room or the arena in which you've entered. So we experience what largely what we expect to experience repeated the the neuroscience is actually pretty simple repeated prior experiences create durable durable synaptic connections so uh between the neurons obviously the more uh, neurons that fire together wire together the more we have an experience the more it gets wired and then subsequently when they, uh, something in that network is lit, those neurons light up and are and fire and they create expectations of what we perceive. So essentially the brain predicts what we'll experience and we'll experience it. And a large part, the brain also predicts how our bodies will feel and how our bodies will behave and what our internal emotional experience will be. And it therefore creates that perception. Another interesting quality of how placebos work is the nature of attention. Many clinical psychologists have noted that after we take a placebo, we'll shift our internal focus away from the quote-unquote problem area or the area where we experience pain and we'll feel like, oh, I've taken a pill or something to address this. Now I can pay attention to the world around me or to other tasks or to other thoughts and we won't be as aware of the pain. So essentially taking a placebo 
creates the permission to no longer focus our attention on something. And if we don't focus our attention on it, then we don't feel it as much. So if I give you a sugar pill and say, this is a, a, a wonderful analgesic, you won't feel the pain in your back anymore. You believe, oh, I've taken an analgesic for the pain in my back. That will set your attention from your cingulate free to look around, pay attention to the TV or the, your phone or whatever you're looking at, and you won't feel the same degree of pain. And thus you'll conclude that the pill actually worked. When our internal dialogues change from focusing on stressful experiences to non-stressful experiences, our self-referential processing, i.e. thinking about ourselves, oh, I'm always in pain or I'm always experiencing this, how dreadful, our internal dialogue changes away from stressful ideations which activate cortisol to non-stressful activations that actually upregulate more pleasant neurotransmitters and we feel better. So taking a placebo switches our attention from the problem and from stressful thinking and that has real benefits. Um, finally, being given a placebo by someone that we believe is a doctor, someone who we believe is empathetic, who cares about us, stimulates the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, the part of the brain that monitors our social connections, that in turn upregulates endorphins and serotonin, so we actually feel better. So, in other words, there are real reasons why placebos work. The belief that we're taking or doing something that benefits our health actually will reduce pain and will lead to health benefits. Placebos work better if they are accompanied by a group of cues. There's, for instance, verbal cues or clear visible cues, like when someone who's in a white coat with a stethoscope says that a pill is effective and you believe that person is a qualified doctor, it will be more effective than if somebody in a business suit gives you a pill or a clinician just wearing casual clothing. Being in a doctor's office or what appears to be a doctor's office will create more beneficial placebo effects than if we're just in a bare room. People feel better almost immediately after undertaking an action to address a condition that they have. This is why many people by the time they reach the dentist's office or the doctor's office will feel much better and sometimes will even be embarrassed that they came over because actually taking an action creates the expectation that the pain or the experience will be downregulated, and that's what we experience as a result. Placebos are not limited to pills and saline injections. Crystals, shaman stones, dream catchers, and rituals especially work very well if we believe they have an effect. Now this brings to one of us to one of the more fascinating things about placebos, which are what if we know 
that a placebo is a placebo. Up until now, we've talked about examples of where someone believes they're getting a real treatment when in fact they were given an inert substance, but it had real benefits. But what if I came to you and I said, and you have IBS or you have uh, anxiety, and I said, <clears throat> hey, placebos really work, here's why, and I just launched into that previous explanation I gave you, and then I said, I'm going to give you a placebo. It doesn't actually have any real medical benefits, but I want you to take it anyway, twice a day. Well, what happens then? Well, in fact, they studied that. In 2014, I believe it was, uh, they gave one group a migraine label uh, drug that was labeled with the drug's name. So this is a real migraine medication. They gave another group a placebo that was marked in a bottle saying placebo. And they gave a third group nothing. That was the control group. Well, guess what? The people who were given the placebo, clearly marked placebo, almost experienced as much relief as the group given the actual medication. So even though they knew it was a placebo, it was effective nonetheless. And this was repeated again and again. Similar results were found with people who had IBS and cancer survivors who experienced severe fatigue who took pills labeled placebo for three weeks demonstrated significant improvement in their energy levels and their cognitive states. So again, simply engaging in a self-care ritual simply engaging in a self-care ritual, whether it's uh, taking a pill or a saline injection or other ritual behaviors, reaps real benefits. And this brings us uh, to the part of the talk where we talk a little bit or discuss a little bit about rituals and how they play a significant role in placebos. Placebo studies um, have been done by a wonderful psychologist, Ted Kapchuk, who's at Harvard and also uh, a uh, clinician at Beth Israel. And he studied, uh, in fact, that's been pretty much the bulk of his work is revolved around placebos. He wrote a paper called Placebo Studies and Ritual Theory where he compares uh, Navajo uh, healing ceremonies with contemporary biomedical treatments. He starts out in the paper by talking about Navajo healing ceremonies, which include chants and um, retell myths and dramas, involves sand paintings and a medicine man who does a dance and then would touch the feet of a sand painting and then touch the feet of a patient. And that was it. That's the, that's the ceremony. The medicine man, after a myth is repeated, there's some chanting, the medicine man touches the sand painting and then touches the painting, the patient. And one would think, wow, this would be an amazing uh, experience to witness, but one wouldn't necessarily expect there to be much medical benefits. Surprise! 
patients invariably demonstrate real improvements, real improvements that can be measured by Western clinicians who take blood pressure checks and uh, blood work and stuff like that. So the ritual, not the sugar pills or the saline injections or whatever, but simply being in a ritual can lead to real benefits. Rituals, according to Kapchuk in Western medicine, he writes, uh, infuses procedures with charged symbolic power. Despite our scientific ethos, our biomedical industry goes beyond the sheer technological expertise and retains the aspects of these early healing rituals. Western medicine evokes the awe and inspiration of touching the ultimate sources of agency, as does healing rituals. Benedetti and, and colleagues said that they believe that it's the ritual of Western treatments that are often the most significant component of treatments, not the actual medicines or procedures involved. It's simply the rituals that people go through, going into the doctor's office, being told that, being given a diagnosis, being paid attention to, having, you know, uh, certain procedures done, that it's simply those rituals that are more effective than very often the actual treatment. And there was some oh, clear examples of this they found. If you have a patient that after an operation is being treated with analgesics, um, such as tramadol and buprenorphine and other opiates, they'll be far less effective in fact, hardly effective at all if the patient doesn't see them actually being administered. And in fact, very often, if you give someone a painkiller but they don't see the painkiller being administered, they'll have less relief than if they're given a placebo but they actually see the placebo being administered. So being part of a ritual very often has as much benefit as actually receiving a treatment. Um, and the same goes for uh, treatments involving Valium after and before operations. Essentially, as Ethan Cross notes, rituals consist of a sequence of behaviors that are performed in the same order each time. They don't have to be rigid, they can change, but they're a specific set of steps that we undergo. And in most cases, these ritual behaviors have absolutely no connection with the broader goal or the treatment that they're aimed at. It's simply the ritual behaviors take uh, so much of our attention and working memory to carry out the tasks that they reduce the anxiety of worry and self-oriented thought. We're actually now paying attention to the ritual and we actually start to feel relief. So uh, an example would be 
if I had um, uh, a pain in my belly or from eating food, if I had a ritual where I hopped three times on my left leg and windmilled my arms and said, ula, 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 if I did that and I actually believed that that ritual would work or told myself it would work, it actually would start to have benefits because simply doing those tasks would uh, provide a sense of order, they give a sense of meaning, and they would transcend my self-fixated, self-referential processing and my fixation on the pain itself. I'd actually open my awareness to other sensations and other opportunities. So how can we perform rituals for ourselves? And uh, I'll close with Capchuk, uh, the guy who studies uh, rituals and placebos, and he says, engaging in the rituals of healthy living, eating right, exercising, yoga, quality social connections, and meditation provides the key ingredients not only for real health benefits, but for placebo effects. And it's because we believe these activities will work that they become even more beneficial for us. So to cap it off, we're now going to go back all the way to, back to where we started with the meta meditation, which, as we saw from the beginning, had such real benefits in blood pressure, immune system, well-being, and reducing anxiety, and we're actually going to practice it and reap the benefits of the placebo effect. So thanks for listening to this talk. I hope that it was uh, interesting in some way. If not, I'll try to come up with an interesting talk next week. And what I'd like to request is find a really comfortable seated position. And while you do so, I'll just take this moment to remind you that um, if you would like to support my work, which is entirely supported by... Uh, donations. I don't charge for anything I do, the counseling or the talks. Um, you can always uh, support me as a Buddhist pastor um, through Venmo, which is Dharma Punks with an X, NYC. <coughs> so, thanks for that. And now let's, uh, in our comfortable seated position, let's close our eyes or look uh, down at the ground before us, or look into space without focusing on any specific object around you. And uh, what we're going to uh, just start with is noting, does the body feel balanced? The body is balanced meaning no leaning forward or back to one side or another. If the body is well balanced, then there's very little effort that goes into our practice, and as well, there's a very little stress 
if the body isn't balanced upright, then what happens is we have to put effort and stress and use muscles to keep ourselves upright. So simply finding where is that sweet spot where I don't have to put any energy into uh, sitting. And of course, if you're choosing to lie down, that's fine. Balance then is about allowing your body to make complete and even contact with the floor, really releasing into the felt support of the floor beneath you. And once we find that good balance, the only thing, the only elements left to the practice really are staying alert, which means not drifting off into kind of dissociative fog. but also constantly taking the time to relax and release any felt tension or tightness in the body. So once balance is achieved, we're just staying alert to are we relaxed? Is there any way we can continue to cultivate ease in the body. So we can start at the top of the head and just scan through down the body, starting with the forehead and just ask, is there any tension or holding or tightness that we can release? And then just practice imagining that we could spread and soften and release any tightness there. And bringing awareness down to the eyes and are the eyes settled or are they bouncing about behind closed eyelids? Are they floating calmly in the warm pools of the eye sockets or are they still carrying out the busyness of the day before us by moving about? The more the eyes settle, the more the mind will settle in accordance. And then down to the mouth, the tongue is the tongue resting. Are the lips settled or are they habitually tensing and relaxing? Encouraging this part of the body to release 
all the action potential and ingrained movement tendencies. Down to the neck is the neck. Are the neck muscles relaxed? Are we habitually tightening the neck or swallowing excessively? Checking the shoulders, are they dropped away from the ears and slightly back so that the chest is open? Giving a lot of room for the expression of respiration in the chest cavity, the expansion and release of inhalation and exhalation. Moving down to the abdomen is the belly fully released or is it held chronically taut, contracted? The expression of chronic stress and anxiety that needlessly rigidly contracted abdominal muscles and so on and so forth moving through the body looking for signs of movement needless or otherwise the residual artifacts of a busy life playing out in the body when we want to come to a complete stop, just with compassion and kindness and the spirit of self-care, just find those areas that are still playing out the busyness of the day before the times before we come to a rest and just remind each area that this is our time to land fully in our life, in our body, in this moment, that there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to achieve in this moment. There's nothing to uphold. This is just the time where we come to a full rest and really appreciate the actual sensations that are keeping us alive, the body breathing in and out in and out.
So let's switch to our meta practice that we spoke of earlier. And just for a way to begin, bring to mind someone who you admire. Someone who in some way has played a beneficial role in your life, if that's possible, or simply someone whose actions you respect. Just visualize them. In the classic metaphrase, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of stress and suffering. Happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering, just sending those wishes to this individual. bringing to mind either the image or name of someone that you deeply care about, a being that you care about. Human or otherwise. Again, may you be happy and peaceful and free of stress and suffering. Sometimes when I'm visualizing for this practice, people I admire, people that I love and care about, I might simply use a very simple thank you. Or, I love you, keep going. Whatever phrase evokes an intention of goodwill 
and kindness towards a figure. Use that phrase. Bringing to mind now a neutral figure, someone that evokes neither positive nor negative affects, someone generally that we don't know, someone that we might see in the past, but have not had yet meaningful interactions. For the purposes of practicing and experiencing kindness and compassion for those we don't even know. Bringing to mind a figure or a name, some kind of image, May you be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Sometimes simply repeating those words or I love you, keep going over and over, can evoke the states of being that are so beneficial.
bringing to mind someone that we're struggling with, someone who is associated with frustration, difficulty, disappointment, If someone that first comes to mind, we're simply too upset with, then bring to mind someone else less evocative until we can hold in our mind either the name or an image of someone that, again, the feelings right now aren't that positive but still connecting with the parts of this person that are either suffering or the parts of this person that are kind or in some way beneficial to others. some quality about this person that we can remember rather than the personal disappointments. May be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering, Relaxing the body, the belly, the shoulders. When we think of someone that we struggle with, that we're disappointed or frustrated with, the body can... The somatic experience can tighten in resistance. So just release and connect with that part of ourself that can rise above the ingrained resentments taking and just wishing this person well. And lastly, as someone who takes the time to wish others well, others, even people that we're struggling with, now bring to mind an image of yourself either as you would appear today in a mirror or as you might have looked at an earlier stage of your life when you most needed kindness and compassion.
infusing that sense of self with kindness, friendliness, and simply addressing our self-reference, our image, may we be happy, peaceful, live without stress and suffering, May you live with ease. Or simply, I love you, keep going. 